All right, welcome to episode 24 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zachary Greenwald, joined today by Greg Knuckles. Greg Knuckles is the founder of Stronger by Science, and he is a co-founder of Mass, which is a monthly research review along with Eric Helms and Mike Zordos. They synthesize the latest in the research and have it uh, be easy to interpret. Stronger by Science, we'll link in the show notes. You can go visit for free articles and training templates and posts. And Mass is a monthly subscription that we strongly recommend you explore. Uh, If time is against you and you're not as scientifically literate as you'd like to be, well, they help synthesize all that for you and save you a lot of time. So without further ado, I I introduce Greg to the show. Greg, how you doing? Doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. By, by the sounds of it, you've uh, you've already shilled all of my stuff and done a better job of it than I probably would. So uh, <laughs> I, I I think we're done here. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. So and, and we've done a bit of dating. Uh, I think yeah, we can uh, we can hang up. You guys will just go to the links and we'll be we'll be done. <laughs> um, so we've we've done. Uh, Greg and I have done kind of like a trading spaces. Uh, I uh, got my bachelor's. From where Greg is now uh, getting his master's, I moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Greg went from Asheville, North Carolina to Chapel Hill. And Greg, the first thing I want to ask you is you've put out such great work. And for those who, uh, for whatever reason, aren't familiar with Mass or Stronger by Science, of course, they're going to head over there now. Um, But I kind of was surprised to see uh, for someone who uh, was so knowledgeable, uh, though understandably kind of thirsty for more, uh, you going back to school for a master's. Uh, if you want to just talk about what this past year has been like and what led to that decision. Uh, well, as as a wise man once said, uh, going back, back to school to prove to my daddy I'm not a fool. Uh, <laughs> was that Billy Madison? Or, yeah, yeah, that was Billy Madison. Um, but no, so uh, for the most part, I write about science and dissect studies and whatnot um and there's there's an aspect of of knowledge of just about anything um that you can't really grasp unless you've actually done whatever it is you're talking about um so like you know for example um i don't write very much at all about uh aerobic training because, like, while I do it, it's not something that I want to be competitive at. Like, I have no aspirations of running a marathon. Um, I know that I could probably cobble together a decent article about uh, aerobic training because I understand aerobic physiology really well. Um, but I know, I know that I probably shouldn't be talking about it all that much because there's um, that gap of, like, experiential knowledge that I have in that area. Um, And I kind of saw it the same way, like, with regards to talking about and writing about science and studies. Um, I had, I I believe, uh, a good understanding of how that process worked. Um, And I have a good grasp of what our accumulated scientific knowledge in the field is. Uh, But I also hadn't personally done science. And uh, my assumption was that there were things that, that I was missing um, just because I did, I did have kind of 
you know, a textbook understanding of the process, but not like that experiential firsthand knowledge of the process. Uh, so yeah, mostly wanted to go back to school. Um, more than anything, just to verify to myself that I'm doing my job well. Um, <laughs> and hopefully be able to do it better. So it's, I don't necessarily want to do anything with the degree. Um, I don't have any aspirations of going on and getting a PhD and going into academia. Like, it's nothing like that. Like, the the degree itself is uh, a vast, vast secondary to the actual, like, experience of doing science and actually putting in the work. Um, when I graduate, I don't even know if I'm going to put it on my CV because it's completely <laughs> inconsequential to me. Well, so you, you are so... Uh, respected and revered by your peers, all of whom have PhDs and have put in that time to receive this formal education. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe your undergraduate was in religion. Did you double major actually? Uh, went in as a history and religion double major. Um, got to my senior capstone class in history realized I loved learning about history, but I didn't actually want any any of the jobs you could get with that degree. Um, so I switched to exercise science and um, so ended up double majoring in exercise science and religion because like I, I was so close to finishing the other one. Um, well, I could have come away with three majors if I really wanted to, uh, but to finish the history major, I would have needed to take like a few years of a foreign language class um which which would have required actually studying a lot <laughs> and by that point um i was kind of on the downhill slide anyways and just wanted to to take my ex-phys classes and, and peace out how did you start uh your own self-education in exercise to be able to have amazing debates with those with their PhDs and to have really thoughtful contributions to power and to uh, nutritional sciences and or, or just even nutritional debates or, or f physique topics and physique debates. How did you go about accumulating this knowledge on your own? And in a, about how much time do you feel like you accumulated uh, a, a foundation of knowledge that you're happy with before deciding you needed more, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I was fortunate in that I got to start really early. Um, I've been really, really into lifting since I was 14. Um, so, like, you know, I'm 26 now, and I think most people my age, yeah, you know, get into lifting like 18, 19, 20. So just simply due to the fact that I got into it earlier than most people do, um, I've been able to accumulate just a few more years of, of reading and learning about stuff. Um, and I got into reading like sciencey type information pretty early as well. Uh, and I think a lot of that is kind of just due to the fact that I'm naturally a very skeptical person. And like, even as a kid, my, my baseline assumption, even when dealing with adults who I should have had uh, respect and deference for, is just assuming that everyone I meet is full of shit all the time about almost everything. 
Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> uh, that's just kind of my baseline assumption. Um, and so, you know, when I would read fitness stuff, which like, uh, back in the day was even worse than it, than it is now, but still to this day is, is primarily garbage. Um, <laughs> you know, even in my little 14, 15 year old brain, I'd be reading stuff and be like, well, you know, that's a nice anecdote you have there, but how generalizable is it? Like, what does the science actually say? Um, and I started realizing pretty quickly that like, very rarely did people make any reference to science. And so like, I remember being like 16 in the school's computer lab and just like Googling, where can I find science articles and stumbling across PubMed. Um, and so like, you know, I, I, I think, I think with everything, it's just a matter of like time and putting in the reps and reading a lot and trying to learn a lot. Um, and I really like reading. Um, I always have, and I put an uh, inordinate amount of time into that. Uh, and I, I was just fortunate in that I could get started really early. Very cool. And when you, at least when I became familiar with your writing, it was through, at, at the time, Strength Theory, now Stronger by Science, uh, these anywhere between 15 to 20 minute reads, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, namely in the, the powerlifting realm, the blog, has been wildly successful and viewed by well, what is the latest number how many people are visiting the site it's it's been incredibly uh, successful since, since launch it's been about 14 million yes yeah, um, so. getting about <laughs> getting about half a million a month so so what um what made you think because obviously it worked that other power lifters would be interested in 15 to 20 minute reads. Is it that, well, if I lift and I like to know a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper, that certainly there have to be others out there who, who want similar answers or have uh, similar thinking? Yeah, so so it's a couple things. Um, when, so like initially that wasn't even part of the calculus. Um, I, I I still to this day primarily just use it as like a repository for my thoughts um, and like information that I accumulate. So basically, so I don't have to remember everything all the time. Um, <laughs> but if I remember like that I cited a paper in a particular article, I can go back and find it and read like my, my synopsis of it very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So... Like, that's initially what I was doing. Um, didn't really care if anyone else read it. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it just kind of started as a repository for my thoughts. Um, and then when I started treating it more like a business, like, one of the first things that anyone tells you when you get into writing is you need to have, uh, you need to have, like, an avatar that you write to, like, you know, a, a particular type of person. Um because if you cast a net too broadly, then if people read like one article, it may connect with them a lot. If they read another article that's intended for a completely different audience, that might not connect with them at all. And then they don't stick around and read a lot of your stuff. Um, so people tell you like, you know, write to an avatar and think of that person as being like who you want your ideal uh, client or ideal um, 
like basically who who you who you would want to buy stuff from you um mm-hmm. and i i took a kernel of that advice but not like the who you would want to buy stuff from you part uh and the avatar i write to is myself um, <laughs> we're we're basically like so i think uh i think people make two mistakes a lot when putting out content um that really limits them one is that people have this idea that you just have to put out stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, and so when you're working on that model, you end up doing a lot of stuff you actually don't really care about. You're just putting out content for content's sake. And I think that comes across to the reader. So like, I don't write anything unless I'm really passionate about it. And like the whole time I'm writing it, I'm just thinking like, ah, this is so cool. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that comes across to people cause I only, I only write stuff that I want to write and want to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing is like, I recognize due to the type of content I put out that the size of audience I can build is inherently limited. Um, like I'm never going to get the page traffic that like T nation does, for example. Um, cause you know, I, I write, I write at a level that's that's going to alienate some percentage of people. And I, I recognize that. Um, but at the same time, the odds of writing teenation type content and then becoming the next teenation is also incredibly low just because that space and that type of stuff like that, that style of writing is just such a crowded niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of times people, uh, get into making content and they have high hopes and they're like, oh, if I just put stuff out consistently, I'll grow a big audience and then everything will be happy and sunshine and rainbows. And then they do that for a couple years and realize that like there's still only 50 people reading their stuff. But then if you read their stuff, they're they're saying the same stuff in the same way as like literally everyone else. And they never stop back to like they never step back to ask themselves like, why the fuck would someone read my stuff compared to the the thousand other people who are saying exactly the same thing I am exactly the same way I am? Um, <laughs> and so I think like, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to toot my own horn and say that I think that what I'm doing is like completely unique and revolutionary. But in terms of like the, the depth and breadth of content I put out, I do think it's, uh, fairly unique in our field um and so even though i know that the total number of people to whom that will appeal um will be limited to some degree when those people find my stuff they're like oh this is cool this is refreshing this is what i've been looking for um Mm -hmm. so you know it's it's less about trying to build an audience of you know a hundred million people and take over the world and more about just Doing the stuff I think is fun and attracting a big enough audience that I can keep a roof over my head. And at the end of the day, I think that's more fun. Yeah, and I think at first I remember seeing, I believe it was an article, I know it was squat related. And I looked and you put the estimated read time at the top. And I was like, man. <laughs> like, and I, I had the time, Greg, I, I, I didn't, someone kind of was like, hey, you should look. He lives in Ashley. You should look in this guy. And I kind of I'd heard about you um, just being in the, the, the Carolinas. And I saw the estimated read time. And I was like, 
who is going to read this? And then <laughs> someone was like, well, there's a ton of people. And then I read it and I just so appreciated the depth and the skepticism, which would lead someone to be this relentless in their research. Uh, what I've loved most was I remember seeing you post on Facebook and then kind of seeing you post on the updates and eventually it was published in January of this year, just your skepticism around periodization and what does the data actually say and what have we kind of accepted as being good literature that we're all just kind of along for the ride with. And just this year you've uh, released a great piece on what the data actually says uh, regarding periodization. And so that skepticism that you explained earlier is definitely uh, clear when I think about it now and is so important so that if we're just uh, in a field where, uh, right, publish or perish, it's hard to really uh, take the foundation and revisit things, right, if I'm not mistaken, that for you to go in uh, so as someone who's not actively conducting research but to synthesize in the way that mass does what the literature actually says and, and and have raised that question mark, I think is so important. Yeah, and I, I feel like another thing as well is um, one, of, one of the issues you run into if, um, one of the issues you can run into if you're publishing in a way that the approval of your peers is important is that you, to some degree, can become slave to orthodoxy. Um, mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, like, you know, if if you're one of those people who, like I said, are writing basically the same stuff everyone else does in basically the same way as everyone else does, um, the, the biggest thing that really differentiates you from anything from anyone else is, like, if a lot of people give you props, uh, kind of that social proof. And so... Uh, there's like an incentive against being willing to uh, like rock the boat too much because mm -hmm. if you stop getting like if if you disagree with too many people too many times and they stop giving you social proof that can dry shit up for you really fast um, and so like I don't know I, I feel like I'm on good terms with everyone uh, in in my little community at least I hope I am I assume I am uh, I, I don't really keep tabs on that. I like all of them, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, I don't like depend on them for, for credibility and traffic, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So if I, if I want to look into something and ruffle some feathers, like I can do it and it's not going to negatively affect me. Uh, and like, that's true in, in blogging. And I feel like that's also true in science to some degree as well. Um, if you read like uh, if you read the book the structure of scientific revolutions um, like the basic premise is that um, like one of one of the, the the things that needs to happen for science to kind of function smoothly is uh, theory building um, where people kind of just start all of their research projects with the same general sets of assumptions and that lets them develop hypotheses to then test and flesh out theories further, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a lot of, like a lot of the things underpinning that theory are just kind of assumed to be true. And mm -hmm. you're going to piss off a lot of people and kind of be labeled as a crank if you don't accept the same set of 
like the same set of beliefs about the underlying theories as everyone else does. Um, and so like, you know, I feel like in, in sports science, uh, periodization is, is very much one of those things where a lot of people just accept that it is good and accept a lot of, uh, like supposed theoretical underpinnings of it. Um, such as like general adaptation syndrome, which probably isn't directly applicable as a physiological underpinning. Um, but you know, you, you can write about that stuff and get it published in journals, but you're probably not going to get it published in like a major, like high impact factor journal that's going to be like broadly influential on your field. Um, and, and that's not, that's not necessarily to say that like scientists are closed-minded or anything like that because i certainly don't think that's the case and going back to the the um like ideas put forth in that book the structure of scientific revolutions like the idea basically is that people work with a general set of assumptions for a long time and then start accumulating evidence that goes against those foundations um and initially it's just kind of perceived as not a big deal until enough of it accumulates. And then uh, there's a paradigm shift and then you kind of establish a new baseline after that. So like that, that definitely does happen in science. Um, but you don't want to be on the front end. You don't want to be on the front edge of that because if you are, you're a crank. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. So and I just kind of like to, to be at least like somewhat insulated and be able to, to do my own thing. Um, and not really, not really worry too much. Like, so this, this might sound like kind of a weird statement. Um, and like from the outside looking in, I'm, I'm sure that I have peers, but I don't really perceive myself as having peers. And that's not saying that like, I think I'm doing better stuff than everyone else. It's saying like, I feel like I'm doing different stuff than everyone else. And I don't use what anyone else is doing like as a yardstick to compare myself to. Like I just, yeah. I just try to do my own thing and not really worry about other people's perception of it. Um, and I think that's fun and it's worked so far. Well, yeah, it certainly has. Have any of your, um, I guess, foundational either understandings or ways that you like to communicate about these matters? Uh, have they changed at all in a year of not just uh, being back in school yourself, but also in educating undergraduate students? Uh, not too much. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at pitching stuff to my audience at, at a level they'll get. Um, like, I mean, the way I would speak at a conference versus the way I'll write on my blog versus the way I'll write a guest post on another blog with a different audience versus the way I'll talk to undergraduate kids in my introductory weight training class, completely different. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't necessarily know that it's changed that much. Like, um, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself... Uh, at least like orally an exceptionally good communicator, but I think I'm, I think I'm adequate enough at it. Uh, that since I don't really do it professionally, I'm, 
I'm good enough, and <laughs> I, I don't really worry about it too much past that. Gotcha. And in uh, I do uh, I do care I do care a lot about written communication, because um, like so, one of the reasons I've one of the reasons I've I've largely stuck with writing um, compared to other other media. Uh, like like podcasting or like making videos uh, or giving a lot of lectures or stuff like that is um, you can always make edits and that's mm -hmm. I mean <laughs> I I'm sure that if I went back and re-listened to this there will be things that I say that like what I mean by them are are entirely obvious to me that in re-listening to it I'll think like oh someone could could definitely hear and interpret this the wrong way. Um, and so, you know, your, your finished product is your finished product. And mm -hmm. if you go back and make edits, it's going to be kind of messy. Like, you know, you can't, you can't just like splice in a voice clip and people not notice. <laughs> um, but you know, with writing, I can, I can do the best job I can put it out in the world and then when new evidence is published or if I come to thinking about things a new way, um, I can make edits for those reasons or just like if I'm getting feedback on it and I'm seeing that a lot of people are misinterpreting something the same way, I can go back and either edit my article or like add notes to clarify things. Um, so I think it's just like a much more durable form of communication uh, and a and just a better medium for people who um, try to be as precise as possible, which mm -hmm. for for communicating some things m might not really matter all that much, but I think for communicating science is a pretty important thing. Yeah, and that, well, that definitely comes through in um, maybe you've made second editions and updates to things that you've written in the past uh, based on what might come out as... Uh, latest uh evidence as i believe strength theory started uh when was that it's certainly been a some time now like 2014 2015 yeah so you're definitely keeping it updated and that that makes a ton of sense um to, to kind of take this in, in another direction to see how you are uh synthesizing all this yourself as it pertains to how you would educate others with training programs, I uh, not long ago and, and reposted and have shared with many others uh, this uh, screen or a photo you took uh, and you presented this to your uh, class and I forget exactly what Chapel Hill calls it again. Uh, basically, it's a class, a physical activity class Elfit. and there's a curriculum. For it. Lifetime uh, what is it? Elfit, Lifetime Fitness. Yes, Lifetime Fitness. Okay. And... Um, I recall going through this myself, and you'd have a like the the master's student would uh, discuss a little bit about either their field of interest or what they're doing, and then you'd go into the curriculum, which is largely just physical activity. Um, but Greg, you spoke to your class about writing programs, and I think you actually had them write their own programs. Uh, we'll attach this in the blog, but you took a photo of the whiteboard and it, it asks pro like question progress and it goes in two directions uh, if you're making progress well there's not much to say thereafter just don't change what you're doing 
maybe a mistake that most people make is trying to change something that's working, but it goes into the know if you're not making progress about how do you feel. If you're feeling good, train harder. If you're worn down uh, or fatigued and you're not making progress, are there things outside of the gym that you need to work on? If so, focus there. If outside of the gym is good, but you're still feeling worn down and fatigued, reduce volume. And what I loved about that is the fact, I think, that it just came from you. And I'm used to reading 15 to 20 minute pieces. And as you said, you have different ways of appropriately speaking to different audiences. But is the simplicity of this and how you would teach, uh, I would say, entry level or prospective personal trainers or coaches, does your perspective around everything uh, performance-based, or I should say, namely strength or hypertrophy-based, seem a little bit more clearly defined and simple, or are there just more questions now to ask? Um, <laughs> so, so that class in general, it, like, it was an activity class, and there's an academic component to it, but that's based on, like, an online textbook that we don't mm -hmm. instruct out of. So, like, the way we were supposed to do that class is, like, kids would show up, we'd take role, and then it would just be, like, you know, 50-minute class and 48 minutes of that was supposed to be activity of some sort. Um, and I taught an exercise and conditioning class, and that that is how that class worked. Um, but I taught three weight training classes, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, if I just put a workout up on the board every day and kids go at it and, and that's that, uh, they're not going to take too much away from the class and mm -hmm. uh, like passed around note cards on the first day. And, um, you know, the the biggest things people wanted to get out of the class is, is what you'd expect. Like, I want to get stronger. I want to build muscle, etc. cetera. Uh, but then a lot of like, you know, I would say over half of the class put on their note cards. Like, I want I want to learn how to write training programs. So like when I go to the SRC, like the student gym, like, I actually know what the heck I'm doing. Um, and so, like, you know, most of the other instructors for the class uh, pr probably didn't feel overly confident teaching the kids how to make their own training programs or just didn't feel uh, like they had the license to try to do that because we didn't. Uh, that wasn't in our job description. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was like, these kids, they're they're 18 to 22 years old. They're pretty new to the gym for the most part. Um, when they leave my class, I don't want them to think like, well, shit, now that Greg's not writing my workouts anymore, what the hell am I supposed to do? Um, uh -huh. So I put together like a curriculum uh, on the down low and uh, started every day with like, so again, it's an activity class. I do have to keep them moving the majority of the time. Um, but I'd start every day with, uh, a lesson that was usually around five minutes or up to 10 minutes tops. Um, so I did have to communicate like on a much, much more basic level there. Um, Cause like if I was giving like a talk at a conference about any of the topics I covered in class, like five minutes is going to be the warm up. Like I'm, yeah. I'm on slide two at that point. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that, that was a challenge, but um, ju just if you're, if you're interested in seeing how the stuff in that class compared to the stuff I put on my site, um, in addition to the little talks I gave them at the beginning of class, I did actually have like written lessons that they could read for themselves. 
Uh, and they're like, they're like two pages long. Because again, like these are activity classes. This, that's not part of their grade. Uh, so I don't want them to have to stress about it, but I also wanted them uh, to be able to take those away from, from class as like a resource that they could come back to and not have to feel like they have to sift through a textbook for like small little details. Um, okay. And like an, another thing as well is um, I'm, I'm going to communicate differently to different audiences based on what sort of information they're looking for. Because um, like, so 99% of what I was teaching those kids was just purely application. Um, these are technique pointers for the squat. Uh, these are general pointers for exercise technique in general, like full range of motion, control your eccentric, explosive concentric, squeeze the bar, lock your back in, don't let your knees cave. Like, you know, pretty, pretty basic stuff. And like, uh, that's, like, I definitely do want most of the articles on my site to have practical application. Um, but again, like the person I'm writing to on my site is myself. And I think that there's value in just learning things for, for their own sake. Um, and there's, it's kind of like the iceberg analogy. Like the amount of stuff there is to know is like the 99% of the iceberg that's like under the surface. But then when, mm -hmm. what you actually go and take and apply, um, for healthy populations, it's pretty basic stuff pretty straightforward. Um, if you're dealing with clinical populations, things can get a little dicier. If you're dealing with really, really elite level athletes, things start getting a little more nuanced and specific. But for, you know, 99% of people, um, you the more you learn, the easier you can make application. So basically, as as the articles on my site get longer, the stuff that I actually communicate to day-to-day -day lifters in person keeps getting shorter. Gotcha. And uh, is there, uh, or I should say in that, is it because through experience and through uh, understanding more of what exists below the iceberg, the uh, pieces to kind of send above the surface are just more clear? They're just uh, seen as having more importance than the rest of the nuance? Uh, yeah, yeah, for the most part. Um, and, and part of it is, is kind of like, like respecting how much people actually want to know, uh, mm -hmm. and like will be kind of capable of learning relative to their level of motivation, if that makes sense. So, yeah, you know, if, if... If you're a person who's going to come to my site and spend 45 minutes reading a single article, uh, then you're a person who, if you ask me, like, hey, uh, tell me about squats. If, if I ramble at you for 30 minutes, you're probably going to appreciate that and absorb a fair amount of it. Because um, that's mm -hmm. just the type of person you are. That's how you're wired. If you're you know, 18 year old kid, you've been lifting for two weeks and you take my beginner weight training course. Um, you don't need that much information. If I try to give it to you, you're not going to remember it. And why would you, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's just not, that, that's not what you're there to get. Um, so, you know, uh, 
the the more total information you give people the larger percentage of it they're going to forget and so a lot of it is just a rhetorical strategy um the really important stuff is the stuff i want them to come away with knowing and if i give them very little very important information like very little total information but all of it is very important they're going to remember all of the the vast majority of the important information i want them to remember if i give mm -hmm. them twice as much information but instead of it being a hundred percent really really important information i've already exhausted all of the important information so it's 50 percent really important information and 50 percent slightly less important information they may come away only remembering 75% of the total important stuff I wanted them to get and 25% of the slightly less important stuff. Um, so, you know, I just present less total information so, they, so they'll be able to remember a higher percentage of the really important stuff, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, has, there, has there been or was there in this past year any conflict between perhaps what kids would I think this would pertain to this avid learner who has some kind of training background, uh, pertaining to what they're learning in the class from their textbook versus what might actually be known now or what you might have been advocating for. Because not long ago, I wrapped up school in 2013. We really, I mean, if, unless you took uh, a strength training class, almost all of the, the current text, or I shouldn't say current, all of the text then which really isn't that long ago, uh, really put an emphasis on uh, you know, aerobic examples and adaptations. The strength uh, field seems much smaller. We had graduate students uh, who were excited about strength training, who were involved in strength training or power training, but it just wasn't at that time uh, how we were being spoken to in class or, or, or what hot topics were, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, so so full disclosure, I never actually read the Lifetime Fitness textbook. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wasn't instructing them on that stuff. Um, uh -huh. Like, we were instructing them on activity, and then I worked, like, a strength training instruction component into my class, which I probably wasn't supposed to. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, we, we weren't teaching them the lifetime fitness stuff, so I don't know how much of what I said conflicted with the textbook. Um, gotcha. But I also think that if I said something that conflicted with the textbook, the kids generally trusted me more. Because um, <laughs> like I, the, 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 couple, the couple of times I needed to glance at the, text, the textbook, um, you know, it was written like an undergrad textbook. Like it didn't cite sources for anything. It was probably... It was probably, you know, pretty science-based for the most part, but also uh, a reasonable amount of opinion of just whoever was writing it. Um, mm -hmm. And I told my kids, like, day one, um, another, th another thing that helped is, like, I was... One of the issues a lot of the other TAs ran into is, you know, their kids are 18 to 22, they're 23, they're fresh out of undergrad, and so they kind of had to be more like hard asses so their kids would like respect them and not try to walk all over them. Um, I was enough older, and I don't think my kids actually knew, 
like I'm 26, but I think my kids kind of thought that I was like mid mid 30s. <laughs> the, the beard um, adds, adds a couple of years of wisdom. It's the beard and the general nihilism. Uh, they, I think they just think I've been beaten down more by the world than someone <laughs> who, who's my age would have been. Um, so just in terms of like, I didn't have to worry quite as much about them walking over me because I think they perceived me as not being their peer, mm -hmm. uh, which, and that allowed me to interact with them more as peers and, you know, just be straight with them and tell them like, you know, if I say something that sounds wrong to you or you disagree with, call me on it. And like we'll talk about it as as two humans, not as like an instructor talking down to a student. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Um and and I knew I could get away with that without the power dynamics getting weird. Um and so yeah, there there were a couple times where like I would say something in class and someone would be like, Well, I read on such and such website X that disagrees with you. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, I would just tell them, uh, email me the article. Uh, I'll, I'll read through it. And, like, I'll tell you why they came to this conclusion, why I came to another conclusion, and why all of the science is on my side. And send you references for all of it. I actually had... Um, oh, sorry. sorry. I had a, a, a TA who... This is, uh, was in 2012. Uh, he was saying, I remember this one day in class, he said, all right, I'm going to talk to you guys about foam rolling. Uh, but, and then he's like, off mic, I think the literature's pretty poor on this. And this was 2012. And there were like gasps. And I recall uh, sending this TA an article. Uh, he now works out, uh, I believe he does research out of Cal State Fullerton. Um, mm -hmm. And he took the research article and kind of took me one step at a time as to where he saw errors in the study as mm -hmm. to how the foam rolling was uh, creating structural change in the subjects. And that opened my eyes to wanting to become more scientifically literate and wanting to just know a little bit more context or potential uh, biases of particular authors. So that uh, that communication uh, was so helpful uh, to me because I uh, created this skepticism in class uh, because this was someone, it was like, you know, if you mentioned that at that time, people weren't really on board with that. Still, you have plenty of people who might not know exactly why the foam roller feels good, but that was just mm -hmm. as a student uh, so helpful to have as, a, as, as someone who became a mentor kind of outside the classroom. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's I think that's so important just in any type of instructor role um, where where like everyone in the room understands where it's not a dynamic of I'm right because I'm the instructor uh -huh. but more like I'm more likely to be right than you because I'm more well read in this field than you are yeah but I'm completely open to being wrong and if you have better sources than me like I'll admit the error of my ways um where like like ult ultimately the the final recourse is the science not who's the teacher and who's the student yeah and 
that's 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 how I tried to teach my classes. Um, and one of the things that I think frustrated my kids and also just frustrates people uh, in general when I give talks is um, like I try to be very logical in how I present things. Like A builds on B, B B builds on C, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, every step along the way. I'll kind of like evaluate what level of evidence supports it. So if I'm like, we have really strong evidence of A, we have like B builds on A, evidence for B is relatively weak. And if you want me to go into that more, I can. Um, But if B happens to be true, then C, and that's ultimately what we hope to be true. But if B is wrong, then that's completely out the window. And like, I'll I'll talk people through that thought process and I think they very much want me to just say that B is completely true and solid, therefore C must be true. Uh, but I don't give them that. And I think that's I think that's frustrating to people initially, but also um, also I, I think helps make them realize that like I'm not just trying to indoctrinate them. Mm-hmm. Um, like ultimately, I want to be right. And if I'm wrong, I want to find out as soon as possible. And so, you know, in addition to teaching my kids how to lift weights, I also kind of tried to teach them how to think in the process. And ho- hopefully some of that stuck just kind of by learning through example. Yeah, I, I recall there was one round table. Uh, it was a, I forget who hosted. It was a volume round table from two to three years ago. And you were on... Uh, with Mike Isertel, Eric Helms, and I, I think that was Eric Helms and Lane, Lane. Norton. And I want to say the talk went on for about uh, maybe seventy to ninety minutes. And you, you were you were just not in the conversation for about forty five minutes. And well, that's because it was Lane and Mike Isertel. I know, I know. But, but like, was I, I? I love Lane and Mike, but you. It's it's hard to have a dialogue with them because they speak in monologue. Well, so so with, I was just sitting back there like, fuck it, what am I going to say? But but what it well, 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 what what was important <laughs> and what speaks to this uh, logic that you're emphasizing here is that you s- sat back and let them speak and and you ultimately synthesized with a graphic how they were all ultimately saying the same thing. And I think to have that, uh, and, and that kind of, to me, speaks to, it gains, I gain a little bit more clarity as to what you mean by, like, you don't really see yourself as having peers because you're just going to use logic and what the current literature says to synthesize things uh, really to their, their essence, if that makes sense, in easy to understand language. Yeah, that's that's what I try to do. <laughs> were there were there kids, and I, I imagine so, who knew who you were because if you don't follow Greg on Instagram, he performed uh, heavy lifts for the class. And, and if I imagine myself, or we coach many students, um, and I, I would just have loved to have been a student, probably knowing as little as I did then, having you as a TA with these little bit like five, 10 minute lectures daily, and then putting on a show at the end of the semester. Did did they ultimately just know that you had a presence and that you were uh, certainly quite 
developed as an athlete yourself so that they, they asked for these heavy attempts? Uh, how did this go about? Uh, so uh, of my three weight training classes, two of them had no idea. <laughs> um, one of them, so I taught two lifetime fitness classes and one uh, PHYA, just general physical activity class. Um, and so LFIT, not necessarily LFIT weight training, but some LFIT classes required for graduation. So everyone takes mm -hmm. one of those. And then PHYA classes are electives. Um, so the kids in my PHYA class tended to have more training experience. And one of them, uh, one of them was a participant in a study that I helped with the prior semester. And so she knew me from that and she was into powerlifting and, uh, it came up in conversation like during the study that I was also a powerlifter. So she knew, she knew that about me. Um, and then three or four other people in that class, uh, are members of UNC barbell club, like UNC's powerlifting team. And I, I'd done a couple seminars for them. So they knew about me. Um, and they like kind of told everyone else in the class who I was. So it was, it was a surprise to two classes and less of a surprise to the third class. Um, but no, uh, like I, I taught some weight training first semester as well. They also had no idea who I was. And, um, last day of the semester, like without fail to this point, one of, one of, uh, the boys in the class, it's always going to be a male, um, will say, well, wh why don't you lift something? Cause like <laughs> they, uh, they, they tried, they tried to get me to lift with them throughout the semester. And I'm like, no, I'm the instructor. I'm not allowed to do that. Like, I can't be keeping an eye on 30 people while I'm knocking out a set of squats. That's not yeah. how that works. Um, so like last day of the semester, since they've been trying to get me to do it all semester, they'll be like, okay, okay. Instruction time is done. Do something. <laughs> uh, and so like, I, I can count on that occurring at this point. Um, but it was funny. Uh, I was like, okay, okay. I'll lift some. And they're like, what do you want to do? I'm like, yeah, I think I'll squat. Go ahead and load the bar up. Uh, and they're like, what do you mean by load it up? Like 225? And I was like, yeah, we'll start with 405. Uh, and like, this is while I'm taking attendance. Um, so then like, you know, a couple people go start putting plates on the bar and like everyone else starts getting like really antsy. And, uh, you know, then squat down, pause it for like five seconds, blow it up out of the hole. And they're like, you're really strong, aren't you? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. But so, like, not telling them about that to that point in the semester is, um, it was like a tactical thing more yeah. than anything. Because, like, I, I want to foster, um, I want to foster, foster, like, a sense of, skepticism and a, and a sense of you should trust what I have to say because I have like the sources on my side unless you should trust what I have to say because I've been lifting longer than you and I'm stronger yeah. than you are. Um, yeah. So like, you know, that's, that's the dynamic I was going for. I didn't, I didn't want them to think in the back of their mind, this great guy is really strong. Therefore he must know what yeah. he's talking about. Cause I, I just don't think how, I just don't think that's how it's supposed to work. 
Um, so like withholding that information from them to that point in the semester was, was very purposeful. Very cool. And did you find that with a new school schedule that you yourself had to revisit that progress chart of how do you feel harder and how do you <laughs> feel worn down, fatigued? Because uh, I imagine training has looked uh, quite different, you know, as we, or as, a, as a business, as we coach longer and, and we reach out to more people. Will, I, just, I don't want to speak for the other uh, my other partners, though I'm sure they would agree, is that one of the hardest things seems to be to have people directed towards this how do you feel worn down or fatigued side of the graph. And it becomes, I think, even harder when outside of the gym stuff needs more, of course, working within the scope of practice. But just having people know that if your schedule changes and life is looking a bit different than when you were training, twice a day or training, you know, two hour sessions with no interruptions, that things in the gym are going to have to look a bit different as well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so no, I, I didn't revisit the progress chart that much because uh, I, <laughs> like, I just, at this point I just train when I can find uh -huh. time to train. Um, which is more now, now that summer has started, thank the Lord. Um, but no, like during the, during the year, like taking classes, teaching classes, helping with research, trying to run two businesses, uh, that there's just not that many yeah. hours in the day. Um, it's like, I would say on a typical day, I was sleeping like four to five hours a night, which is not where I function best. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things where, like, if I'm busy and stressed out and sleeping, like, eight hours a night, like, eh, s screw it. I can find an hour in the day, lift some weights, yeah. and sleep seven hours a night. Like, I don't mind sacrificing an hour of sleep that much if it's going from, like, eight hours to seven hours and everything mm -hmm. else is still jam-packed. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to sacrifice my fourth hour of sleep. Um, like, going from four to three, that's mm -hmm. unacceptable. Um so yeah, I would mostly just train kind of sporadically and randomly when I happen mm -hmm. to have time. Um, and when I went to the gym, I would just do what sounded fun for the day because I knew that I didn't have time in my schedule to actually like implement a thought out program. Um, so yeah, I honestly just didn't put any thought into it. And when I could lift weights, I just lifted weights. And, and stronger time. by size, you, you have three coaches now through that business who work with people remotely, if I'm not mistaken, correct? And uh, let's yeah. just say that, you know, if they, if they have someone, I, I think it's, and I, and I know that uh, feeling myself, it's just like, okay, well, you know, it's not happening today, it's, just, it's not happening. Like, and, and when it does, I just get in what I can. Um, but do those coaches uh, who are working for you or when you've worked with clients, do you make... Um, or have found challenges where people are paying you for programming, but you start going down that worn down and fatigued side of things. As for how training might change, um, is there an, a particular emphasis uh, across the board? Is it more just communicating with that particular person about perhaps decreased frequency, decreased volumes, etc.? Uh, it depends on the client mm -hmm. and what they're trying to get out of it. Um, and you kind of deal with yeah. different people different ways. If it's, uh, 
you know, if it's someone who's just trying to lift weights, get stronger, look better, kind of, you know, general population, they have goals, they want direction, that's why they hired a coach. Like, they're more serious about it than the average person, but they're not necessarily, like, you know, trying to qualify for a big powerlifting meet or something like that, or, like, not trying to step on a bodybuilding stage. Um, then, yeah, we talk to them, meet them where they're at, um, see, like, you know, you're busy, you got a lot of stuff going on. Is there anything you could possibly trim away? Or if not, like, what sort of program adjustments we need to make to kind of accommodate your schedule? If it's someone who, um, you know, they hire us because they need to put... 30 kilos on their total in the next six months to qualify for nationals or something like that then it's more of like a more mm -hmm. of like a tough love type thing um where it's like look you said this was your goal this is why you're paying us uh like you need to reevaluate your priorities here um and then if they reevaluate their priorities and they're just like you know i just I can't deal with this. Like, if this is the type of training I need to do to hit this goal, maybe this goal is unrealistic, then it's like, okay, cool. So for the next few months, um, we're just going to take it easier, pull back on some stuff, try to keep making progress. Then when the other stuff in your life, like, resolves itself, then we'll get more serious again. Uh, you know, that's one potential resolution. Um or if they're like, you know, no, this is still 100% what I'm about. Um, you know, I, th like, this is my goal. I'm going to do whatever it takes to reach that goal. Um, then it's it's more like, okay, you got to train, you got to sleep. Mm -hmm. What else needs to go? Um, and generally, they can find stuff that can go. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Uh, like, like, I'll tell you this, um, I don't focus nearly as much on competition mm -hmm. anymore as I used to, um, but if I did, I think I'd probably mm -hmm. still be finding time to train more. Um, whether that meant, like, uh, letting some business stuff kind of go by the wayside or just kind of accepting my grades wouldn't be quite as good, um... I could probably find some stuff to hack away. But again, it's a matter of assessing priorities. Like for me right now, priority number one, school, research, etc. Priority number two, maintain some sort of relationship with my wife, hopefully a good one. Priority number three, keep both my businesses rolling. Priority number four, you know, not die of a heart attack before I get out of school with all of the other shit that's going on. Um, and then training would be like priority number five. But generally, those first four priorities subsume the vast majority of my time. Um, but like that's fine with me because those are my higher priorities. And if that means I can't get to the gym as much, uh, I would not have been content with that at all uh, four or five years ago because my priorities were way different. Um, but that's what that's what fits with my prior priorities now. Yeah, uh, and I'm content with it, yeah, at I, least I, in the short. At least in the short term, like when when I when I get out of school, uh, wanna wanna put up some big numbers. Well, and, and that, that's what I was gonna actually ask 
next, but but I do I do think that uh, sometimes without uh, that hierarchy of of priorities, I think sometimes people might realize that what they're changing, like it just it comes down to realistic goal setting, right? And, and sometimes it's a quick fix because they either are okay with less frequency or they are, are okay shifting some of those pieces around. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes people struggle with, with goal setting in, in, in that regard. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to ask you, Greg, and, and being mindful of your time, I certainly want to let you on your way, uh, especially because you're off school and I want you to be resting up. Uh, but when, when you're done with school, uh, I'm sure in addition to keeping the businesses going, do you have any specific plans in terms of returning to uh, uh, the platform? I, I know at least for the Elfit class, you, you put up some some numbers that you were pretty pleased, uh, at least in the com- uh, caption, it, it seemed that way. Uh, yeah, I, so my, my long-term goals for a while have been um, I want to squat and pull eight, I want to bench five, and I want to yeah. put together a 2,000 total on the platform. Um, before going to school, I was pretty close to all of those. Uh, except for the deadlift. Deadlift, uh, deadlift is, is about 65 pounds off. Um, but I squatted 765. And so eight's not too far from that. And bench 485, so five should be doable. And if I, if I hit those individual lifts, I should be able to put together the 2,000 total on the platform. Um, so I think those are, those are goals I'll be happy with, Mm -hmm. but also think are pretty reasonable. Um, and that's, uh, then, then after that, it'll come time to just kind of reassess things. Um, like I love the sport of powerlifting, but I don't necessarily know Mm. that I want to do it forever. Um, like, I mean, I definitely want to lift heavy stuff forever, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there there are definitely some lifters who do the sport hard mm-hmm. for 40 years and are still in good shape. Um, there are a lot more who, like, yeah. something breaks along the way, uh, and I kind of don't want to take my chances there, and also, like, you know, I, I've, I've been doing this for 12 years now, like, it's... Uh, not an incredibly complicated sport, uh, and I kind of just want to try new things. So, to counter the first statement of not wanting to break myself entirely, um, <laughs> kind of want to try strongman because strongman looks awesome. Um, and really, really, just not have to worry about making decisions with the the thought of will this make me as strong as possible in mind. Um, cause like, you know, th- this isn't strictly a fitness goal, but like, mm-hmm. I love playing pickup basketball. Like if I had to give up lifting weights or playing basketball for the rest of my life, I'd probably give up lifting weights. Um, I just love the game and I, I don't play ball nearly as much as I would like to, um, because like. I'm a, I'm a relatively large guy, and if I play a ton of basketball, my knees go to shit, uh, and that impacts my squat. So, you know, lose some weight, play more ball, uh, do some strongman. Like, I don't know. Like, put, put up some big numbers, probably get back to powerlifting eventually at some point in my life, but 
not feel like I have to stress about it at least at least for a couple of years. Awesome, awesome. Well, Greg, I'm I'm excited to see what more is to come uh, from from both businesses, and we'll certainly link everyone <clears throat> for those who don't know you. The they'll know where to find you, and, and just uh, really grateful for for you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I had a blast. Awesome. Thanks so much.